Take your Bible today, if you would, and join me in Romans chapter number three. Romans chapter number three. Some time ago, we began our study in the book of Romans, and we started by looking at some portraits, some pictures, if you will. And we really looked at some portraits of a godly man. In the introductory portion of Romans, we got a good look at the Apostle Paul and the way the Lord was using this unique servant of the Most High God. And then we turned a corner in that study and then in Romans 1 and all throughout Romans 2, we saw what we referred to as the very dark backdrop of sin. God framed life for people like you and I in honest terms. He wasn't trying to say some nice things to make us feel better about ourselves or our situation. It was the very dark backdrop of sin. But we find ourselves now in Romans chapter 3 and there's really a new section that we get to and we'll title this section in the book of Romans the dawning of deliverance. The dawning of deliverance. Now we don't get there exactly today but I will say that that it has been said that sometimes the, the night is the darkest just before dawn. We're going to find in Romans chapter 3 that it's going to get very dark, but we are then on the cusp of the dawn of new grace, truth that God's intended for people just like you and me. When we look at the Apostle Paul, we start to stand in, in somewhat of some awe and wonder at this remarkable man and remarkable mind. But might I add, no more remarkable than God has created any one of his children to do the work that he's called each of us individually to do. So we don't, we don't look at the Apostle Paul and say, oh boy, I, I wish I were. We just look in the mirror and say, God, thank you for for choosing to make me a vessel that bears your image and does the work that you have empowered and created me to do. But we still do look at the Apostle Paul and we say, Lord, clearly he was fitted for the task that's before him. Okay, now how many of you have ever had a conversation with yourself before out loud? How many of you have ever done that before? I was studying um, not, not too long ago, actually, and I was in my study at home and I was having conversation while I'm studying. And it was just me and Sadie, uh, my dog, and I wasn't actually talking to her. So, so I'm having this conversation in my study and Julie walks by and she says, do you always like talk through, you know, these things to yourself? And, and I suppose I said something like more often than you would know. Okay, so I'm just having conversation with myself. Um, how many of you have ever lost an argument you had with yourself? Okay, many of you. We'll see you after the service. Okay, so... At times we have these conversations and you know what the Apostle Paul's about to do? He's about to have question and answer time, a Q&A. And what he does is he starts to have this, this anticipatory mindset regarding, okay, they're going to ask this, so I'm going to ask the question for them and then I'm going to answer it. Now I suppose that this Q&A, these questions came from maybe a series of questions that he'd already been asked. His travels were prolific, his, his interactions profound, 
And so Paul, under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, is anticipating what is about to be said. And by the way, a, a good, a good um, person interacting with others, trying to help them, oftentimes anticipates what is it that they're going to say? What are the questions that they're going to have? And that's exactly where we find ourselves today with the Apostle Paul. There's going to be some objections that are raised. And in our text, the objector is primarily a Jew. But you could, I would submit, insert any number of religionists in their place. So don't sit from the high seat of, of you know, self-worth and, and self-justification saying, oh, those, those Jews, boy, they had a problem. Because you can just as easily insert yourself, myself, into this dialogue. It could be a Mormon. It could be a Mohammedan. It could be a Methodist. Christian scientist or a Catholic. A Buddhist or a Baptist. Whoever it is that is attempting to work their way to God or to manipulate God to their own end. And I would submit to you that God will never be manipulated. Your Bibles are open to Romans chapter three. Let's start right in with this Q&A that the Apostle Paul begins to open up in this dialogue. Romans chapter three, beginning in verse number one. What advantage then hath the Jew? This is the first of the questions that the Apostle Paul is anticipating. Okay, well, Paul, you just spent Romans chapter 2 telling me that all of our rights, all of our passages, all of our morality is of no value. There's no good in it whatsoever. So what good is it? For us to live this lifestyle, to hold to this pathway, to claim Jehovah as our God, what good is it in being a Jew? Now, let me ask you, have you ever asked your question, is everything I'm doing right now really worth it? I mean, I do this and this and this. I, I endure this. I go through this. Listen, what advantage is it? For me with God, with all that I am doing for him. He's going to go on with this question. Look at verse number two, or let's finish verse number one. What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Verse two, much every way. But then he says, let's start out with the most important. Chiefly, because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. Okay, the first question that the Jew poses is what we might refer to as the heritage question. The heritage question. What advantage do I have with my Jewish heritage? Now remember in chapter 2, Paul dismantled the ceremonies, the religious practices that the Jews held to so fiercely. One commentary said it this way. Jews do not have guaranteed spiritual security, either by physical lineage or by religious heritage. Being born a descendant of Abraham, knowing God's law and being circumcised did not assure them a place in heaven. So then the obvious question is, what good does it do being a Jew? 
does our heritage mean anything? Paul answers this quickly and he answers it quite directly. He says much every way. He says chiefly, here's the supreme thing, because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. Now he said, you've been given the the logos. You've been given the word of God. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse number 11. When you start to think like, whoa, wow, I've been given the word of God. When you've been given the oracles, these truths from Almighty God, and these belong to you, the apostle Peter said, listen, this is very authoritative. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. If any man speak, he's talking specifically about preaching. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. Here's what a good sermon does not do. A good sermon doesn't say, well, we could consider this. Now, there are certainly things to consider from preaching, but preaching should start, it should originate with what we commonly refer to today as the Word of God. There has to be some absolute aspect of truth that's true for all people, all places, and all times. And the Apostle Paul says, listen, you're asking what's been given to me? What advantage is there of being a Jew? He says, well, first and foremost, you've been given the place where it originated with mankind, the word of God, it originated with you. He's saying this is our supreme authority. It was given first to the Jews. Both the signs and the scriptures were theirs. They had knowledge of the mind and will and character of God. And this is something that other peoples did not possess. Now, the Jews looked at this knowledge and this privilege as the final answer, as in, well, this is the game over. Okay, so, so we have been given this, uh, you know, religious position. We're Jews. We have a heritage. They're not thinking about the word of God. They're just thinking about this is who we are. It's kind of like a mic drop moment. What can anyone say to us about our eternal future? Because God, the Father, is ours. The Pharisees tried to use this argument with Jesus. Abraham is our father. They're trying to hearken to their heritage. And the apostle Paul pulls that rug out from underneath them. They're trying to say in some sense, listen, because I was born a Jew, because Judaism, so to speak, this is my religion, I'm good, game over. I wonder if at times we don't look at our own selves as game over mentality. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. I go to the right church. I've said the right things. I hold to the right truths. I've got all the boxes checked. Game over. Nothing else is necessary. It was back in 1984 and the Dallas Mavs, the Mavericks were playing the, they were playing L.A., and so the, the playoff games were in full swing and Dallas, the Mavs were a woeful underdog in this game. But as they're playing the Lakers, the Mavs held in this game incredibly well and it's down to the last few seconds of the game. And Dallas um, lost possession, excuse me, Dallas, the Mavs now have possession and there's just a few seconds. In fact, I watched the clip And as I'm watching this clip, I'm watching the time, you know, just tick away. And when they had six seconds left, they passed it to a rookie, Derek Harper. 
The ball goes to Harper, and when Harper gets it, he can't go over the half-court line or it would be over and back, but he takes the ball and he immediately goes to the half-court line. Six seconds left, the clock is ticking, and everybody's moving around to get open, and Harper just takes the ball and he dribbles around in a protective way. Really, nobody's coming after him. He dribbles around in a protective way, and he's waiting for the clock to go to zero. The game's tied And they had several seconds to try to shoot the ball. But Harper just takes it, goes, dribbles, and the clock expires. When the clock expires, he tosses the ball and he runs back to his bench to celebrate the victory. Harper thought they were up by one, but they were tied. When you look at his face, now this is old footage because this is back in 1984. But when you look at the tape, listen, you don't have to have HD to see the dejection on this guy's face. His coach is looking at him like, what in the world did you do? And he's coming back like, hey, I just won the game for us. Didn't I? I didn't. And you can see his whole body language changes. Can you imagine how does he face the rest of the team at that moment? They went into overtime and guess what they did in overtime? Lost by seven, okay. He thought, hey, listen, game over. We've won the game. Well, in reality, it was game over, but they didn't win the game. How often do we look at the wrong thing or we look at a thing the wrong way thinking, listen, I'm good, game over. Regrettably, there are some that believe they have won the game, but in reality, they have not. In fact, unless they understand the position accurately that they are in, then they lose the ultimate game. That is this matter of eternity. The Jews had been celebrating in their religion, but not in their relationship with God. How often do we hold to our rightness of religion? We have the word of God. We have the teaching, the standards, the dress, the music, the traditions. Do these things matter? Only when put in their proper place. In like fashion, the Jews said, does it really matter if we are Jews? And Paul said, absolutely, but use your position rightly. God had intended for the Jews to be what he tells all believers to be in Matthew chapter 5. He says, let your light so shine before men. The Jews were supposed to be this beacon, this peculiar people that would light the way to God. One man illustrated it this way. He said, imagine you're on an island and there is an island that is populated by many people. But the island is engulfed in gross darkness, no light. You can't see and there is only one way, one narrow bridge over this deep chasm over which you can escape the island. And every person has this very faint penlight. I mean, you you can't barely see in front of you. You could maybe just shine it and and maybe see to avoid some of the obstacles or or avoid going over the chasm. But, But to navigate with this, you just can't see. It's a little light, but it's so faint. And then there was a group of people that were given a powerful spotlight. I mean, it's powerful. You you can shine that light and you can see hundreds, if not thousands of yards ahead. And, And that light is so bright that it could point hundreds and thousands of people to the escape from the island, the bridge that would lead them to safety. But 
But the people who have the light, they, they use it to, to investigate kind of like the needle in the haystack. They, they shine it so closely and they're looking at this minutiae. They are doing, in a sense, what Jesus said. They are, they are straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. They're using the resource that they've been given by Almighty God for a means that has, has no real purpose and makes no real sense. Paul told the Jews that said, well, well, what advantage does it have then for us to be a Jew? He says, much in every way. You have the word of God. So take the word of God and use it to light your own path across that narrow bridge and use that bright light to shine a path for thousands to see their way from danger to everlasting, eternal security, safety in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, what is it that, that Paul answers in this Q&A? He starts by asking the question of heritage, but he goes a little bit further than that. Look down at verse number three and we'll see the hopelessness question. Now they're trying to get tricky with their question, Paul anticipates. And so not only do they have this, in a sense, kind of easier heritage question. Now it's like, well, okay, th this is like an all or nothing hopelessness or absolutely hopeful deal. Look down at verse number three. Here the question anticipated is, for what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect okay basically they're asking that since some people don't believe are you saying that God won't save any of us even though some don't believe him doesn't he still have to keep his promise to save all of us okay here's what the Jews were saying they're saying okay well some don't believe right so we all understand there are some who believe some that were Jews but they don't believe some Jews that they're like okay we're Jews and we do believe so is this an all or nothing deal? Like, like since, some, since some don't believe, is God going to void the promise? They're looking at God's promise as a national security blanket. Okay, so all the Jews must be saved because God promised, right? Did you know that some today still look at this, this blanket of God's promise saying, okay, listen, if, if I'm a Jew, I'm all good. Or if I joined this church, if I was baptized into this religion, if I have this family, I'm good, right? What the Jews said is God has to honor his promise to us as a nation or the promise is absolutely and fully void. Basically what they're saying is, did God grant us diplomatic immunity or not? In other words, no matter what we do, are we in or are we, are we, no matter what we do, are we all out? You know, I did a little reading on, on diplomatic immunity and it's quite profound what takes place when a person has diplomatic immunity. It gives diplomats and their family members protection from being prosecuted in the foreign lands where they are serving. Um, listen, even here in the United States, foreign dip diplomats that come, many of which obviously are, are hovering around serving through the United Nations, in one five-year period of time with, with those that had diplomatic immunity, they racked up a bill of over $18 million in traffic fines alone because they had diplomatic immunity. 
Okay, listen, we don't have to pay. And they didn't have to pay because they had $18 million worth of fines. Diplomatic immunity. Under the Vienna Convention ratified in 1961 by 187 countries, diplomats shall not be liable to any form of arrest or detention. It's essentially a get out of jail free card. And sometimes it's been used for very serious crimes. Do you know what the Jews are asking? The Jews are saying, okay, we understand our heritage, but we also have a promise that God made. Don't we have some hope that we get diplomatic immunity or is this absolutely hopeless? Is the promise void because everybody doesn't believe? Paul's answer to this is very direct. You know, isn't God, they're saying, going to keep his covenant and save me even though I don't believe? Doesn't the Jewish race some, have some kind of diplomatic immunity? And notice how Paul answers. He says, yes, God is going to keep his covenant, but that does not include those who have not believed. Look at verse number four, Romans chapter three. Verse number four says, and here's a statement, a term that Paul uses often throughout his writings and certainly throughout Romans. He says, God forbid. Yea, let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Paul very strongly says, God will absolutely remain faithful to all that he has promised. The mistake of Paul's accusers was in believing that God's unconditional promises to Israel applied to all individual Jews at all times. The Jews' question was, it was clever, but it was actually wicked. They're twisting scripture out of context. Paul's stating very clearly that the faithful, faithlessness of mankind, whether Jew or Gentile, has no impact on the faithfulness of God. Yes, God certainly deals with Israel nationally, but this doesn't prevent him from interacting with individuals personally. So the Paul, Paul had answered the question of heritage. He'd answered this question of, in a sense, isn't this hopeless because we haven't all believed? And now let's look at this third question that he asks, and it's a hypothetical question. Let me pose a hypothetical. Look, if you will, down at verse number five. Romans chapter three, verse five says this. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. Now pause right here. We'll look further in just a moment. What they're saying now is, if my sin makes God look good, is he just in judging my sin? This is, this is I would submit, the most twisted and the most wicked of their questions. If my sin actually makes God look good, Shouldn't I just continue to sin? And if my sin makes God look good, how can God be righteous in judging my sin? Paul dives right into this and he, he doesn't mince words. Look at verse number six. Paul says, God forbid, for then how shall God judge the world? The fact of the matter is this, sin never glorifies God. It is evil and it bears evil fruit. God did not establish commands knowing that we would break them for his own benefit. 
He established them so that we would know our state and confront us with our wrongness, our offenses. This is the first step to reconciliation. Notice how he continues on with this Q&A. Look down at verse number seven. Romans 3 verse number 7. For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner and not rather as we be slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come whose damnation is just. One of the most obvious aspects of our fallen human nature is our ability to rationalize sin. Now let me say that again and let me ask you to dial in on that statement. Because I do it and I suspect you may as well. Do you ever find yourself rationalizing your sin? In other words, we do a lot of different things to try to minimize our offense and one of the most wicked things we can do is say, you know, I'm gonna sin But God is so gracious, he's so good, he's going to forgive me my sin and I'm going to enjoy this renewed fellowship. And in fact, it just redounds to the grace of God. So shouldn't we, Paul asks this question later, which we'll address later as well. He asks the question in Romans chapter 6, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And then he uses those two words again. He says, God forbid in other words what kind of crazy thinking is that how shall we why in the world should we who are indeed dead to sin live any longer therein why should I continue to embrace my sin when I died with Christ for the same in other words we're not justified in doing wrong Simply so the goodness and mercy and grace of God can be revealed in our lives. How godless it would be to sin with the knowledge of, I'll just ask forgiveness so it's okay. How godless it is for us to say, I'm going to sin and I'll ask forgiveness so it's all okay. Do you, have certain, do you have certain foods that you know you just like, I don't like it, I don't enjoy it, and, and when I eat it, it makes me violently ill? Who would say, you know, I'm, I, but I know what can, can help me. I mean, I'm going to take a couple of Pepto-Bismols, you know, if I get really sick and it helps me. Who in the world would, would eat the thing that they know is, is going to make them sick and they don't like and, and it's not good for them just so they can take the Pepto-Bismo to feel better. Can you imagine, wives, your husband coming home one day and he says, hey, 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 listen, I want you to know I robbed the 7-Eleven on the way home, but I did so so I can enjoy the, the wonder of reconciliation with God and ask his forgiveness. Well, she'd, she'd be calling the cops and saying, hey, listen, you're going to experience something else first, Okay. Why would a person say, I'm going to violate the holiness of God just so I can experience the grace of God? If there is any father here that would encourage his son to go live a wayward, prodigal life simply so he could experience the joy that the the father experienced when his son finally returns home, 
then, then that father is clearly not thinking well. We, we want our children to live, so to speak, with boring testimonies. We want them to live in such a way that they don't have to experience the reality of what is it like to, to go to a far country and live the life of a prodigal. No parent wants their children to do that. Why? Well, man, we, we want them to have, in a sense, this testimony that just says, I, I, I'm not perfect, but man, every day I want to walk with God. Is, is there joy over one who went astray and returns? And the answer is great joy. But isn't it better for that person to have never wandered and continue to walk with God than to wander and need to return to God? And do you know what the Jews were saying? They're saying, hey, listen, we, we just, um, we think it's great, this grace of God thing that you're talking about, Paul. So, so let's just continue to give God an opportunity to demonstrate how gracious he is. What is it that he's presenting in this Q&A? Well, he, he, he does this, this observation or this question about heritage, this question of hopelessness, this hypothetical question. Let's, as we close this message, consider some observations that we deduce from these Q&As, this question and answer time that the Apostle Paul has. So as we summarize this section of Romans, it becomes clear again that God does hate sin. And sadly, many times, you and I do not. The reason God hates sin isn't because of what it does to him. And let me say that again. The reason God hates sin is not because of what sin does to God. He hates sin because of his holiness and because of what sin does to those he loves. Oftentimes, a child may think that a parent's frustrated. Well, you're just angry at me because of what I did, because of how that makes you look. Have you ever had that thought before? Like you did something, you lived in such a way and you got the thought that my, my parents are really bothered but it's, it's not that they're bothered that I sinned, they're bothered because of how it makes them look. Well, parents are built out of the same stuff that, that everybody's built out of and sometimes they may have that feeling. But I would submit, in, in which I might go on and say that's a terrible reason to hate children's sin. There's a much better reason to hate sin. And it's not because of how it may make you or how it may make me look. There's a better reason to hate sin. And I think most parents hold to this reason. It's not because of what it does to them. It's because of what they know it does to their child. So, oh, they're broken hearted about what, what their child is doing. Not because, well, do you know what this is going to do to me? Do you know what this is going to do to my testimony? Do you know what this is going to do to my ministry or my opportunities or my future? Or do you know what your parents or your grandparents or your, your cousins or do you know what your friends or my... Listen, th those are all terrible reasons to hate sin. They may be realities, but they're not the reason to hate it. I suspect that the reason most parents hate the sin of a child is because of what that sin does to the child. Oh, they're broken because they know the way that that child now may go. In like fashion, sin impacts us, not God. It grieves him 
What does God want us to see regarding this? Oh, a broken heart because of what sin does to those he loves. So what does God want us to see about this this position that so many that Paul was addressing had taken? Well, I think in conclusion, he wants us to understand, number one, do not presume upon God's patience. Don't presume upon God's patience. You know, oftentimes we we just think, you know, God, I'm so thankful for your patience. I'm thankful that you're the God of the second chance, as I am as well. But don't presume upon it. Oh, you know, I have an infinite number of get out of jail free cards and, and I can just keep going to God and going to God. Well, can you? Let me ask it this way. Is that the right question to ask? Wouldn't it be better to ask, am I being presumptuous with the goodness of God? David prayed very directly in Psalm chapter 19, verse 13. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright. And then shall I be innocent from the great transgression. David understood, listen, if I don't presume upon God's goodness for even the little things, it will keep me back from committing the greater things. We often do. We thank God that he is gracious and that we should. We say, Lord, thank you for your patience and rightly so. But don't be presumptuous with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll just do this because God's gracious and he's patient. God is patient. He is gracious. But may we never presume upon it. Instead, we should be expecting that he will provide strength necessary to be conformed into his likeness. Rather than presuming on his patience while boldly continuing in sin. May we not presume upon his patience. Second, don't assume that forgiveness removes consequence. Don't assume that forgiveness removes consequence. One of the most wonderful truths for a Christian is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To that we say, amen. However, To sin with the knowledge that I'll just get forgiven later is incredibly ungrateful. Ever use the expression, there's there's more where that came from. Hey, listen, there's more where that came from. Listen, there is more grace where that came from. But again, it goes back to this idea of assuming that I can do this and there's never going to be any consequence. The idea that we can sin and then just ask God to forgive us later is an assumption that says there's no consequence for sin. To sin in anticipation of his forgiveness is the height of spiritual arrogance. It's opposed to that to which we have been called. We've been called a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, peculiar people that we should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. How many of you, when you were a kid, ever did something wrong in class? Your teacher said, I'd like to see you after class. And you went up and decided to apologize before the teacher spoke. Did you ever do that? The teacher said, hey, Tim, I need to see you after class. And so he comes up and and the teacher starts to talk and and the student says, hey, listen, I know what I did was wrong. And I just want to tell you, I am so sorry for what I did. And the teacher said, thank you so much. Would you forgive me? Yes, I forgive you. 
Now tomorrow, I want you to have a thousand word paper written and I'd like you to have that single spaced and to me um, by class time tomorrow. And you look at the teacher and you say, wait, 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 no, let me say it again. Please forgive me. And the teacher says, I do. A thousand words. And they... Do you know many times we assume that forgiveness equals the removal of consequence. Please know that God can fully and wonderfully forgive and yet include consequence to help train and correct and redirect his children. And then lastly, don't resume the practice of sin by claiming to live under the grace of God. All of these are willful rejections of how a Christian is called to live. Obviously, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you lost your desire to sin. But don't use the grace of God as your excuse to continue to sin. In Jude chapter 1 verse number 4, the Bible says, Ungodly men turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. This is this unbridled godlessness. Those that Paul was addressing in Romans 3 have nothing to offer the world because they are essentially no different from the world. How many times, believer, how many times do we consume the same content, use the same language, justify the same lifestyle, boast in our modesty, and live the same way as those who do not know Christ? Sadly, For many of us, it may be far too often. As followers of Christ, we have this twisted view of grace and believe it's simply the license we were looking for that allows us to do whatever we want and simply claim that no one can tell us what to do and what not to do. Because God is good. He continually closes any way that does not lead to him. He pulls the rug out from under our arguments and our twisted logic, our religious ways. And and he stands before us holding the mirror of his word. It's an accurate mirror. It provides an accurate portrayal of self. The question left for each of us is, what will we do with the one we see standing reflected in the mirror? May we not use some twisted logic, some Q&A game with God in an attempt to justify ourselves at the expense of God's righteousness. May we come before God humbly and say, God, would you reveal myself to me and make me look like you rather than me trying to make you look like me?